Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today we'll be airing one of Dr. Neufeld's most popular series to date, Ruth, Finding God in the Disappointments and Losses of Life. So join us today and for the next three weeks as we look into the book of Ruth, today opening our Bibles to Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. I want to draw your attention to two words, loss and disappointment. I promise you that if you don't know those two words, one day you will be intimately acquainted with both of them. The two words are very different, for they speak of different experiences. Loss refers to something you once had, but has been taken from you. Things like a marriage, either through death or a divorce, your wealth, your reputation, a friendship, a cherished possession, even your children. Disappointment, on the other hand, refers to something you've never had, but something you've wanted so very badly. And these might be the very same things that others have lost, like marriage or children or wealth or deeply enduring friendships or a possession you so much wanted to have. And sometimes loss and disappointment happen in the same sentence. A person may lose their child to a horrible accident, that's loss. But a person anticipated having that child into their old age, that's disappointment. But both of these experiences, loss and disappointment, can produce in us several different reactions. Some people find these experiences altogether devastating. Their lives become filled with sadness or anger or enduring grief and even long-term bitterness. The loss becomes the defining issue of their lives. They're incapable of ever embracing joy again. But that doesn't have to be the case. It is possible to find God in our losses and disappointments. It really is possible for these experiences to produce a richness that nothing else can. That's what Peter seems to indicate in 1 Peter 1.6, where he speaks of believers who have been grieved by various trials, and to them he promises this will result in the tested genuineness of your faith. Elizabeth Elliot, a remarkable woman who suffered her own losses, wrote the following lines. To be a follower of the crucified Christ means, sooner or later, a personal encounter with a cross. And the cross always entails loss. It is not by any means an easy thing to recognize that within a given instance of personal loss, the opportunity it affords for participation in Christ's own loss. Ultimately, for a believer, that's what loss teaches us. It teaches us to fully enter into the experience of our Lord and as such must be seen as a great privilege. How is it possible to get there? Well, we're going to find that out. For the next three weeks, we're going to be studying the book of Ruth, a book which is in many ways a case study of finding God in the middle of grief and disappointment and a life that is anything but ideal. We'll find that the hardest things that we face afford us an opportunity to find grace that would never be available to us were it not for this present loss. The book of Ruth is a true story. It is, on the one hand, a very beautiful love story that results in marriage to a commendable man and then to children. It's also a story of the rise of Israel's legitimate king, King David. And as the book tells us in the end, Ruth was, in fact, King David's great-grandmother. Furthermore, she stands in the royal lineage of Christ himself, and as such, the book carries with it the theme of redemption and grace that will only be fulfilled in Christ. 
We will attend to all of these themes, but at the core of the book is the story of the sovereignty of God and a remarkable woman, and the story of how this remarkable woman found this God to be altogether satisfying in the midst of uncertainty and danger and poverty and loss. Now, before we jump into this wonderful story, let's set the stage. We don't know the author of the book, but there is a very old tradition that states that Samuel the prophet wrote the book. That may or may not be the case, but we can give an approximate date for the writing of the book. Because the genealogy at the end of the book only mentions David and not Solomon, we assume that it was written before the rise of Solomon and during the life of David. We can't say with certainty whether David was already king when the book was written, but many Bible teachers assume he must have been. I mean, why else would it have been written? But of course, if the book was written by Samuel, who died before David became king, we have to assume that since Samuel had anointed David as king long before he actually became the king, Samuel may have written the book of Ruth in faith. At any rate, We know that David became king in 1010 B.C. He died 40 years later, which would make it 970 B.C. at the time of his death. So this book, the book of Ruth, is in fact an ancient book. We are reading a 3,000-year-old book. Well, according to the first sentence in the book, the events described happened in the earlier days, in the days when the judges ruled. So if we trace the death of Joshua to 1358 B.C. and the beginning of the reign of King Saul in 1043 B.C. and the death of Samuel, the last of the judges, in the year 1017 B.C., we can locate the events described in this book happening somewhere around a 300-year period of time. But because Ruth is the great-grandmother of David, we have a genealogy in the book. That would put the account described here as happening somewhere around 1250 B.C. What I mean to point out is that the book describes historical events that happened about 200 years earlier. This is, if you will, a true history. So imagine you, in our day, are reading a history of what happened before Canadian Confederation, events that led to the formation of our country, and you get the basic idea. And that's why when you read Ruth, you come to lines like the one found in Ruth 4, verse 7. It says, now this was the custom in former times. That's because the author has to tell us about what the culture used to be like. He's saying, if you don't know what it used to be like in our nation's history, you won't understand the drama of this story. Well, as you can see, if you're going to understand the drama of this story, we're going to have to do a lot more work than the people that originally read this book. For them, the events happened 200 years earlier, but for us, these events happened 3,200 years earlier. So we're going to have to do a little bit of homework. So let's get back to the first sentence of the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, it says. Well, what were those days like? Well, the period of time described in the book of Judges can be characterized by a phrase that is repeated twice in that book. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, in some ways, that sounds remarkably contemporary. We Canadians should be able to understand what those days were like fairly well, for we live in days like that. More than one historian has noticed how different our world is than even the world that existed at the end of the Second World War. Theirs was a culture of certainty, of truth. Statements could be made with certainty. Hitler and fascism is evil, for instance. But ours is a very different world. Absolute truths, 
universal norms, moral imperatives, these have all passed away. And in its place are my truths, my perspectives, my rights. Everyone today in our world is doing what's right in his or her own eyes. Now, after the death of Joshua, when Israel had great certainty, Joshua ended his life by giving Israel a charge. Choose this day whom you will serve. But regardless of what choice you make, as for me and my house, he said, we'll serve the Lord. And then the people responded, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Imagine a generation very much like the World War II generation. They're certain about God and their obligations to him. And then, says the book of Judges, after the death of Joshua, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then the book of Judges presents us with a horrifying history. For a period of close to 300 years, things got progressively worse. Fifteen judges, or rulers in Israel, judged or ruled the people. The first was a man named Othniel, and he was presented as an ideal. Nothing negative is said about him. And by the time you get to the fifth judge, Gibeon, he's clearly a mixed bag. And by the time of the eighth judge, Jephthah, he's so ignorant of God's laws that he sacrifices his daughter in the fire to the Lord. And by the time of the twelfth, Samson, you find a man who doesn't even want to live among the Israelites. He's a Philistine in every sense of the word and never once promotes faithfulness to God. The only reason he wrecks vengeance on the Philistines is because of his own personal tragic love stories. And then as the end of the book appears, all human decency is eclipsed. The priesthood has become utterly corrupt. Crime now occurs on a level that was unheard of in Israel before this time, and a civil war erupts that will almost destroy one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Yes, it was in these days that our story begins, says the book of Ruth, in the dark ages. And as the book opens up, we find the first character we are introduced to is a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah. And verse 2 mentions that this man and his family were Ephrathites from Bethlehem. People reading this book when it was written would immediately remember the history of that place. That was where the corrupt priests from Dan corrupted the worship of the God of Israel. That was also the place where a certain woman was from who was raped, murdered, and then cut into 12 pieces, resulting in a civil war. And as the book of Ruth opens, in two very quick sentences, we get a picture of the background upon which the drama we will read is acted out. This is the place where human decency was swallowed up, and in every man was doing what was right in his own eyes, and more so, this was the place where the natural consequences of that kind of a worldview was being fully played out with its most horrifying consequences. And when we come back, we're going to find out that you really can find God right there. It's remarkable how similar the culture and the times were in Ruth's day to what we're experiencing right now. In a sense, we find ourselves in the dark ages when it comes to the degradation of our society with respect to morality and truth, for example. There is so much to unpack as we begin to grasp what this great book of the Bible has to say. After the break, we'll get deeper into the context of these first few verses of Ruth and see some of the greater themes that we can apply for ourselves. This month is the release of our newest issue of Truth in Life magazine, and it focuses on the culture of the day and how we as Christian people ought to live and respond to that culture. Certainly, the Word of God never changes, but the world around us, well, someone once said, the only constant in life is change. Isn't it wonderful to know that our God and His love is steadfast, unchanging? So make sure to subscribe for Truth in Life today. It's free and delivered to your door every other month, and this issue speaks so well into the culture of our day. 
You can do that today by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or by signing up online at backtothebible.ca. And beginning this month, you can also view Truth and Life online at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Let's read the first verse in the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now the name Bethlehem literally means house of bread. The town was no doubt given that name because of the rich, fertile area it inhabited and the agricultural resources that flowed from it. So it may surprise us to hear of this famine. Things were not as they should be. Now, how could there be no bread in the house of bread? How could there not be enough to eat? Loss and disappointment. Judges 6, 3 to 5 might give one explanation for this. It says, For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. That might account for the famine, but we're not told. All we know is that the people were starving, and this Hebrew family of four have pulled up their roots and moved from Israel to Moab. They've left the promised land for the land of Moab. That would mean this family traveled east and lived somewhere on the eastern side of the Dead Sea in which would now be a part of the modern nation of Jordan. The Moabites had a very unique history. According to Genesis 19, Lot, who was the nephew of Abraham, he had an incestuous relationship with his two daughters, and Moab was the son of Lot's older daughter. And throughout their history, the Moabites had a very rocky relationship with Israel. When Israel first came out of Egypt, Moses was forbidden from attacking them, even though the Moabites were hostile to Israel. In Numbers chapters 22 to 24, the Bible records the Moabites as hiring a false prophet named Balaam or Balaam to curse Israel. Then having failed in that venture, according to Numbers 25, the Moabites decided to seduce Israel. Numbers 25 verses 1 to 2 states, While Israel was living in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These, that is the Moabites, invited the people, that is the people of Israel, to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Now, But the bad relationship between Israel and Moab was also more recent. According to Judges 3, Moab defeated Israel under the leadership of their king, Eglon, and subjected Israel to their cruel rule for 18 years until Israel was able to overthrow them when a judge named Ehud assassinated their king and led an army against them. And according to Judges 10, Israel was often unfaithful to the Lord by doing evil and serving the gods of the Moabites. And so whether sexually or religiously or militarily, Moab always represented not just a national threat, but turning to Moab was like turning from the God of Israel. The Bible takes this threat from Moab so seriously that in Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, it says, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Before we move on, we need to add one more important feature about the Moabites, and that has to do with their religion. 
When Solomon would later in his life become an idolater, 1 Kings 11 verse 7 says, Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. Chemosh was the principal deity or god of the Moabite pantheon. Indeed, the prophet Jeremiah would call the Moabites the people of Chemosh. And the Bible does not describe the worship of Moab. The only reference we have comes from 2 Kings 3.27, which mentions human sacrifice. The only other thing we know of Chemosh worship was that it was syncretistic. It borrowed freely from numerous religions and integrated these various religious ideas into their own worship. And all of this posed a horrible danger for Israel. Did the judge Jephthah burn his own daughter because he was exposed to Chemosh? Well, quite possibly. Did the worship of Chemosh incorporate ideas about Israel's God into their own religion? Well, most certainly, and that was the danger. Because of the syncretistic nature of Chemosh worship, it would be easy for Israel to lose the idea that their God alone was God. The Moabites would respond, no, well, actually, our God's very much like your God, too. And you see how important the background is in order for us to understand this book. And now that we've heard this, let's read the opening of the book of Ruth again. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. You notice it ends by saying they remained there. Yes, that's where they made their homes. I know that later on we'll see that Naomi, probably she alone, remained faithful to the God of Israel. And furthermore, we'll also read that after the death of her husband, that God had given food in Bethlehem, that the famine was over. But we don't really know how long the famine was over. And we do know that Elimelech had no intention of ever moving his family back to Israel. In the end, his sons married Moabite women, and it might well be the case that he became comfortable with the worship of Chemosh. After all, there were so many similarities between Chemosh and Yahweh of Israel anyway. And that's how the book of Ruth opens up. It's a story of a life in a terrible time. It's a story of rampant idolatry and crime. And the principal characters of the story are definitely not known for their faithfulness to God's covenant with his people. And out of that story comes the sovereign work of God. And out of that story comes one of the most beautiful love stories we have. And out of that story comes the godly line of the Messiah and God's promise that he would crush the head of the evil one and bring salvation to the whole world. I wonder what we should learn from the book of Ruth. I suppose one of the lessons might be the one that Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy 2, verse 13. He says, If we are faithless... He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. An individual may turn from God, but God remains faithful to his promise to bring a great good in spite of human evil. But there is another lesson, the one we began with. I'm talking about loss and disappointment. These two words simply describe so much of what we read. The loss of godliness and decency in Israel. The loss of food and plenty in Bethlehem. One family's loss of faith. And of course, as we will see, the idea of loss goes further. As we read of the death of the three men of that family, leaving one woman, and I think a godly Israelite woman named Naomi, without a family, having to fend for herself at a time when human decency and the care of widows had all been eclipsed. 
But this book does not have loss as its theme. Rather, the theme is the amazing provision of a surprising God. You might be listening to everything that I've described and ask yourself, well, can anything good come from this story? And the answer is, yes, yes, it can. Well, we might say, but nothing good happens in faithless times. But we'd be wrong. People can find God in faithless times. And when we discover that God is there in the face of the worst situations imaginable, we might even begin to thank God for the worst of all possible times, for in them we found him. There are some of you listening to my voice who are bitter. Maybe you're sad or disappointed, and you're unable to go past the things you've already lost. But you're wrong to remain in that state. I remember what Elijah the prophet said to King Ahaziah. He said, is there no God in Israel? Indeed, for you who will not let go of your sorrow, can you imagine finding God in the worst of times? Can you imagine your hardship coming so that you might find your faith emerge as pure gold? Let me pray that for you. Heavenly Father, for those who are listening to my voice, who are suffering from loss and sorrow that seems unending, I pray that in the midst of the tears and in the midst of the dark valley they live in, may they find you as the source of all light, and may they thank you that you are always there. In Jesus' name, amen. John, today's message really provides us a a great foundation for what Ruth is going to teach us. Uh, But as you were talking, I was thinking about how disappointment and loss in life really provides us choices, choices for living, choices of how we're going to face those disappointments. What would you suggest to us? It's an interesting insight, Ben, that loss actually presents us with a choice rather than determines our next steps. I think that in itself ought to help us out. We need to see God as sovereign even in our losses and not mourn them forever. I can't imagine one thing that we have in this world that we're not going to lose except for Christ himself and our faith. So let's hold on to those things that are ultimately enduring and let's commit ourselves to saying, I can't hold on to this world. It is going to be lost to me anyway. I think that's part of our insight that we need to have. I'm looking so much more forward to hearing about the faithfulness of God in the days to come. Thanks, John, and join us again tomorrow for more of Back to the Bible Canada. The book of Ruth is a fascinating study, as we can already begin to see the relevance of some of these themes like living in harsh times, God's faithfulness despite human weakness, and the sovereignty of God. I hope that today's message has been encouraging and challenging for you, whatever the season of life you find yourself in right now. There is one truth that never goes away. God is there, and He is present and working even in the midst of a difficult and painful time. Join us tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld continues to show us more wisdom from the Book of Ruth in this current series. Every month, thousands of ministry friends across Canada send in their gifts to support the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, and we couldn't do ministry without you. Your gifts sustain our Bible teaching programs on this station, on our website, podcast, and mobile app. Your gifts provide all the audio programming electronically and all of our print resources and for free. 
breaking down barriers for anyone to access trustworthy Bible teaching. Your gifts provide our Young Adult Bible Engagement podcast and website in doubt to thousands of young people every month. Your kindness is critical to all we do, so thank you. And please continue to support and bless this ministry with your prayers and gifts. You can call us today at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.